morning. It's good to be with you all this morning to worship the living God with you, to bring uh, God's word. Although I'm sorry for the, uh, the circumstances, and uh, Craig and his family have been in my prayers, and his mom, uh, it, is a, it is a treat, a really a staggering treat that God's people enjoy every Lord's Day, and not just on the Lord's Day, but even uh, throughout the week, that we can, we can open up God's word and hear from the Lord and giver of life, the one who's made all things. And so now we turn uh, to his word. So I'd like to, to uh, draw your attention to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 for a study in God's word today. And right from the beginning, let me say that these, uh, the thoughts that I want to share with you this morning from this passage are not all uh, original with me. Most of them come from uh, Jonathan Edwards. So if you happen to be reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon, The Excellencies of Christ, uh, it's not just coincidence, the things that you see that are similar between that sermon and, and, and this, uh, but um, I, I'm indebted to Edwards. He, he is, Edwards has been immensely helpful to me, and this sermon of Edwards has been immensely helpful to me, and I hope that it is as well uh, to you as we look at uh, Revelation 5. And one other thing before uh, we begin reading God's Word here. Um, when we begin in chapter 5, we're kind of jumping in right in the middle of a scene. Uh, The Apostle John is in exile on the uh, island of Patmos, and he's had this vision, and he's he's really seeing what heaven is like, and he's writing to us what heaven is like. There's this picture of the throne room, and so chapter 4 is uh, the picture of God the Father as he's seated upon the throne. He is uh, the one spoken of as the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And there's this, this awesome picture of, of worship there in the throne room. And so we come right there in the middle of that scene as we begin in, in chapter 5. And, uh, and so now we'll turn to God's Word. But let's turn to the Lord and the Holy Spirit to have His help as we read His Word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You that You do not treat us as our sins deserve We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And we thank you for your word, that you are not a God who has remained silent, but that you've spoken and you've revealed yourself to us. That you've not simply left this world, this cosmos, broken, irreparably, but that you have brought redemption at exceedingly great cost, infinite cost to yourself. Father, in giving your Son, Lord Jesus, and laying down your life for us. And we pray that... Father, as you have given us your Son, how will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, that we might uh, see wonderful things in your Word. Open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your Word and see Jesus here. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. If you would please rise for the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep 
no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, thus far, reading in God's holy and inspired word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Well, if you know um, anything at all about the book of, of Revelation, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that, that in the church there's uh, quite a divide on how to understand the book of Revelation. Uh, what, is, uh, what is Revelation talking about? But I think there's, there's one way to sum up uh, what all believers believe Revelation is talking about. Just in two words, Jesus wins. It's as simple as that. But though it is simple, it is profound. It's profound for the audience that John is writing to. He's writing to uh, the church, the suffering church of his day, and he's writing to the church throughout all generations, right up to this present generation and to us gathered here uh, before God's Word. Uh, it's a profound message because we experience this world as not all put together just right the way it's supposed to be. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Things are painful Things are fallen. Things are, are broken. The whole of our existence is, is fallen. And uh, perhaps in our, our youth, uh, in naivete, at times we might think that there are times or there are seasons or there are parts of our life that can be uh, segregated off from this fallen and broken experience. But if you live long enough, everybody comes to the conclusion that there is no bastion of security from this brokenness of our experience. Everything is, is touched by the dirty fingers of uh, the fall. And it's not just that, that everything is tainted uh, a little bit, but there are things that are so profoundly wrong and so profoundly painful that we're tempted to despair. So much so that, that I, I can 
venture with boldness to guess that everyone here has known what it is to despair. And, uh, and that's, that's the, uh, the temptation. That is the thing that uh, is the challenge for John's audience. And so he writes this message uh, about uh, Revelation that Jesus wins so that we wouldn't despair, so that we wouldn't uh, have no hope. Uh, and that's, uh, that's really the message of the book of Revelation. And it's summarized for us in chapter 5, verse 5, that we, that we just read. Uh, there's uh, John weeping. As, uh, as he sees that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to take the scroll and to open its seals, uh, able to bring redemption. In chapter 5, verse 5, we read this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus wins. And that's the subject of, of all of Revelation, but specifically all of Revelation chapter 5. Uh, that is the subject of the praise that we hear in Revelation. It's amazing, isn't it, when we see this chapter and, and hear the words here to, to be kind of ushered into the scene and with our imagination try to, to grasp what's going on uh, there in this, in this worship in heaven. It's, it's almost too much to take in. Uh, for instance, in, uh, in verse 11, we see them uh, worshiping. Uh, all those gathered around the throne, and it's, it reads this way, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What would that be like to hear? Myriads of myriads of, of angels. Uh, I've, I've understand that uh, myriads of myriads to be hundreds of millions uh, of angels gathered around the throne. What's the largest group you've ever been a part of that were yelling at the top of their voice? Uh, for me, for probably most of us, it's an athletic experience, uh, athletic event, but for me it was uh, going to, to Clemson's Death Valley uh, in the 2016 football season, the year that they won it all. I went there for the Clemson-Louisville game, and uh, the game was really undecided right up to the last Louisville drive, and uh, Lamar Jackson and the Louisville uh, team was marching down the field, and they got right down into the, the red zone. And Lamar Jackson, on fourth down, threw a pass. His receiver caught it, and just a yard from getting the first down, the Clemson uh, defensive player pushed him out of bounds, and, and Clemson had effectively won the game. And the stadium of 88,000 people just er- erupted. Uh, it was the loudest thing I've ever heard. Uh, it was amazing the emotion that was there. Uh, in that stadium. But there's some key differences between that experience (laughs) and John's experience here in the text, aren't there? Uh, For one thing, just think of the volume and the emotion that that we see here in the text. Uh, The people I heard at the top of their voice yelling were human beings. The people that John hears in this text are angels. And at the beginning of the text, we hear just one mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. And how far does his voice travel? It travels to heaven and the earth and under the earth. And presumably no creature, uh, no being in heaven or on earth or under the earth was hidden from the sound of his voice. That's how powerful the voice of this one angel was. And here in verse 11, we've got a hundred million angels with a loud voice worshiping God. That's, That's significant. That's powerful volume. And it's powerful emotion that's conveyed. And their emotion is, is joy and enthusiasm over the subject of their worship, the, the Lamb of God. One other obvious key difference between what I experienced at Clemson's Stadium and uh, what John experienced here 
is, is the subject uh, that they're excited about. At, at Clemson's stadium, we were excited about a game. A game. Uh, in, in heaven, they are excited about all of eternity being resolved. From the creation of the world to its conclusion, everything was desperately broken. And now, all that is wrong is, is now certainly to be put right. Uh, there is no greater news from all eternity past or all eternity to come than this news that they are celebrating there as the Lamb has triumphed and He's taken the scroll and He is able to break uh, the seal. So it's, it's the triumph of the Lamb that they're celebrating there uh, in heaven. And, and in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we see that there's, it's not just the triumph of the Lamb uh, as, it, as it pertains to our sin being atoned for. That's, that's certainly significant, but it's, it's all of history being resolved. When God is worshipped in chapter 4, verse uh, 8, we see Him worshipped as the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. What's significant about that name? Well, he's the potentate of time. He's the one who's always been and is now and always will be. He's the one who is sovereign over all of those things, all, everything that, is, that has happened. And the, the angels and the four living creatures and the elders worship God because of what they see that has now finally unfolded to completion in history. As we experience the history that unfolds in our life, that, that's not the first reaction that we have to seeing that history unfold, is it? Uh, it it's dismaying, the things that we, that we see. We don't see everything complete, but we can see a reflection of it in the faces of these angels as they worship God, as they get a glimpse of history complete, uh, as God has brought all things uh, to, a, to a conclusion, and as He has made all things right uh, and then we also see that in chapter 5 at the beginning. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? Well, this scroll contains the purposes of God for the history of the world from its beginning to its conclusion. And it's sealed with seven seals. That is to say God cannot bring about his purposes unless someone is worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals and to open the scroll. Because without this lion, without this lamb, God's purposes will not be fulfilled. And all that is broken will stay broken. All that is worth weeping about, weeping about in despair, will always eternally be worth weeping about in despair. And so... Uh, this, is, this is God's plan, uh, and uh, it, as John experiences it here in this scene, uh, he, he sees that no one is able to open the scroll, and he weeps, and he weeps. And it's not uh, just that he's a, a little down. This is a, weep of, a weeping of absolute despair, because there is absolutely no hope. If no one can open the scroll, there is no hope for anyone, anyone who's ever been, anyone who is now, or anyone who ever will be for all eternity. There is no hope. And so he, he weeps and he weeps and he hears this elder say, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has triumphed and he is able to take the scroll and to open uh, its seals. And so John is looking for a lion. He's seeing the scene unfolded before him. Where is this lion? What does he see? When he identifies the lion, he doesn't see a lion, does he? He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Uh, that's, that's a, an odd picture that we have in this text. 
Why, why is Jesus identified for us as this lion and this lamb? These two animals that, that are apparently very opposite. Uh, very opposite animals, and yet uh, that's how Jesus is described here. How does that help us understand who Jesus is? Well, there are in Jesus uh, opposite perfections, beautiful perfections that are united in the person of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, combined in him. The lion and the lamb are very different animals. Uh, from the earliest of times, people have appreciated having lambs, having flocks, uh, because of how uh, docile lambs are. Lambs are, are um, they easily yield themselves uh, to any kind of use. They, they yield themselves for clothing. Uh, like a lamb before its shears is silent, so the Lamb of God did not open his, his mouth. And so lambs yield themselves for clothing. They, they yield themselves for food. Uh, they're good for unblemished sacrifices uh, all through uh, the Old Testament. And the lion's quite different in the things that are good about lions. They are powerful in their strength and their ferocity, graceful in their movements as we see the power of these, these creatures moving. Very different animals. Uh, and yet, uh, that's how Jesus is described as both lion and lamb. These two opposite perfections in the Lord Jesus. Let me just give an example, uh, as you see it in your, your sermon outlines there, of some ways in which Jesus is, uh, has these opposite perfections uh, united in him. Infinite highness and infinite condescension. That is to say, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot imagine of any being being higher than the Lord Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, he's transcendent above all. When John sees this picture of Jesus in his glorified state, what's John's reaction? In chapter 1, he falls at his feet as though dead. He's terrified. And Jesus says, do not fear. See, I, I've conquered death. I'm the one who is and who was. Uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and I hold in my hands the keys of death in, in Hades. Do not uh, be afraid. And so Jesus is, has this transcendent awesome highness, and yet at the same time, Jesus is this one who's intimate and humble. He told, so much so that he told his disciples, uh, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. What an awesome thing to hear Jesus say to his disciples, and, and really to anyone who is disciple, is, uh, who's his disciple, who's following him, he is calling us to call him friend. The one who spoke into nothing and made everything. We know that by Jesus, uh, all things were made. He's the one by whom and for whom all things were made. And yet he, he condescends to be infinite, uh, to be intimate with us. Uh, infinite highness and infinite condescension in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then just, just to mention these others, uh, infinite justice and infinite grace in the Lord Jesus. Infinite glory and lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Uh, he is the most marvelous example of meekness that's ever been presented on this earth. Uh, if anyone has reason for pride, uh, it's the Lord Jesus. If anyone has reason to boast, it's the Lord Jesus, because he's greater than all. And yet there's no example of greater humility and meekness than, than the Lord Jesus. How can that be so? In Jesus, we see deepest reverence towards God the Father and total equality with God the Father. In Jesus, we see the perfect spirit of obedience, and yet he has supreme dominion over all things. He has absolute sovereignty, and yet perfect resignation. And he has total self-sufficiency, and yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see entire trust upon God the Father. 
dependence upon God the Father. More dependent and more trusting of God the Father than you and I are ever going to experience in this life. Yet we have reason to be dependent far more, infinitely more reason to be dependent upon God the Father than Jesus did. And yet you see these two opposite perfections united in the Lord Jesus. And so this is why uh, John sees Jesus as both lion and lamb. There's these opposite perfections in the Lord Jesus. And just to to look at this theme more now, uh, let's look at it as the the text looks at it uh, with Jesus upon the cross. This is Jesus' cross work that's put before us in this passage. He's the lamb who has been slain. He has this mortal wound. That's all a reference to his work upon the cross. And it's, it's in his work upon the cross that we most see Jesus as the lion and uh, the lamb. Christ never appeared so much as a lamb as when he was slain. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet in this, above all other acts, he appears as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who alone can break the seals because of his cross work. He is both lion and lamb. And so we see in his work upon the cross, to begin with, the greatest display of his humility and at the same time the greatest display of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the, uh, the soldier uh, could look upon the Lord Jesus and say, surely this was the Son of God. We see his, this great uh, humility in the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's, it's there before the cross work. You see the Lord Jesus in his humility and his incarnation. Uh, he's the one who spoke into nothing and made everything. He's the one by whom and for whom all the worlds were created. He's the one who sustains all the stars in their places. Uh, the furthest we can see in the, uh, in the cosmos today is, I guess, about uh, 5 billion light years. I, I don't, I've lost track of exactly how far it is, that the, the furthest visible star, but we certainly understand the universe to expand beyond that, uh, what we can see. And Jesus holds all of that together. And in his incarnation, this one who holds the entire cosmos together becomes the size of a single-cell zygote in the womb of a virgin. That's humility that, that we can't fathom. And so we see his humility in his incarnation. We see his humility in his life. That the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see him being born into a family uh, without uh, tremendously great economic means. We see him suffering many things uh, through his life. But the greatest display of the Lord Jesus and his humility is his agony in the garden until he expired upon the cross, his, his passion, his cross work. And we see that being pointed out here in the text, uh, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, he sees the, the, the lamb, the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. And also verse 9, worthy you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you, were, you ransomed people for God. Uh, verse 12 as well, the subject of the, the praise in heaven there. Uh, he was slain. It's by his blood, verse 9. Uh, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is what John's holding out to us as the example of Jesus being both lion and lamb. And we see his humility in him being slain. Never was Jesus so uh, suffered so much disgrace than in his work upon the cross and in his passion. The Lord and giver of life was spat upon. The one who sustained the life breath of those who scourged him received their scourges upon his back. 
the crown of thorns upon his head. Those who mocked him on the cross had their very life sustained by him. And in humility, he endures it all. We see Jesus in pain. We see Jesus in sorrow, certainly throughout his life, but never like his work upon the cross and in his passion. And in the garden, he says uh, of, his, of his sorrow there, that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even unto death, as though the sorrow itself were about to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that I can't relate to. It's, it's a, a sorrow that's beyond our comprehension. He appeared so weak, and we see him with such condescension and lowliness and humility and meekness and patience, making himself nothing. Never do we see this magnified so as on his work upon the cross. Edwards puts it this way, Never was his divine glory and majesty covered with so thick and dark a veil. And yet right here in the cross we see the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. So that the soldier says, surely this was the, the Son of God. This is the very thing that is singled out in heaven itself as the ground for worship, as the very thing that displays the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is Jesus and His work upon the cross that He was slain. In His death, Jesus most glorified the Father. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth And in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And why do they burst out in song and praise for God the Father? It's because Jesus has finished his work upon the cross. So we see his his glory upon the cross. Edwards again, never was his divine glory so manifested by any act of his as in yielding himself up to these sufferings. When the fruit of his death appeared, and the mystery of it was unraveled and revealed, and the ends for which it was brought about were unfolded, then did it appear as the most glorious act of Christ that ever he exercised towards any creature. There, upon the cross, you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Moses asks God the Father to see his glory... And God hides him behind the rock and puts his hand upon him and he passes over and he says, uh, he's revealing his glory. And what does he say about himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. When God wants to reveal his glory most, he reveals it in his grace and in his mercy. And when Jesus reveals his glory most, it's in his mercy and his passion upon the cross. Here we see the Lord Jesus in his humility and in his, his glory. So this is the greatest display of his humility and his glory. And it was the greatest display of his love for God the Father and his love at the same time for the enemies of God the Father. His love to God is displayed on the cross because this is a supreme act of obedience. There has never been anything more difficult than what Jesus did upon the cross. The one who hates sin with a perfect and infinite hatred knowing full well the cup that he was about to take up and drink to its dregs, takes up that cup full of our sin that he hates with a perfect hatred, and he drinks it down to its dregs. And it was out of love for God the Father that he was so obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It's in obedience that we express our love, and it was in obedience that the Lord Jesus expressed his love to God the Father. We see the Lord Jesus vindicating the majesty and the justice of 
God the Father, the holiness and the honor of God's authority. Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What if the Father had not sent the Son? What would his forbearance over sin look like? God would not be good. God would not be just. He's the one who makes friends with sinners and leaves sins unpunished. He's the one who fails to hate sin if he does not send the Lord Jesus to atone for our sins. Edward says, Nor did ever any creature give such a testimony of love to God as that was Jesus dying upon the cross. So he gives this testimony of love to God the Father, but at the same time, right there upon the cross, he is expressing, he is showing the greatest display of love for God's enemies that has ever been displayed. The greatest expression of love to sinful men who were the enemies of God. Romans 5, 10, we were the enemies. Uh, While we were enemies, rather, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. The Lord Jesus himself said to his disciples, greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. No greater love can there be. And this is, this is how Jesus expresses his love for the enemies of God the Father, his own enemies. The greatness of Christ's love to his enemies is displayed most clearly in that it is a dying love. The blood that Christ shed in his agony in the garden and in the crucifixion was shed from love to God's enemies and his own. Edward says, Never did Christ so eminently show his regard to God's honor as in offering up himself a victim to justice. And yet in the same, uh, in this above all, he, he manifested his love to them who dishonored God so as to bring such guilt upon themselves that nothing less than his own blood could atone for it. He probably was then shedding his blood for some of them that shed his blood for whom he had prayed while they were crucifying him and who were probably afterwards brought home to Christ by Peter's preaching. There upon the cross, Jesus displays his love to us. And so we may stagger and recoil at the painful things that we experience in life and think, why would a good God allow such things? And we may never have the answer as to why in this life, but we do have this undeniable proof that he loves us and the Father loves us because the Father did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all and the Lord Jesus laid down his life in this indelible proof of his love. And so we may not understand, but we can trust him. And here in the cross we see the greatest display of his holiness and at the same time never did he bear so much guilt. His holiness, it was the greatest trial of his holiness and therefore the greatest display of it. He had this steadfast pursuit of God's honor and obedience to the Father. Christ yields himself to undergo the greatest suffering ever endured. And that was the greatest act of obedience that was ever paid to God by anyone since the foundation of the world. And so there's this display of Jesus' holiness there upon the cross. And yet at the same time, he displays this guilt that he has. In verse uh, 9, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you 
ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is to say, he ransomed them by taking their sins upon himself. The very verse that we used, uh, that we looked at for the confession and the pardon of sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin. The Father made Jesus to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that sin that causes us to cringe when we, when we think about it. That sin placed upon the Lord Jesus. And not just that sin, but all of your sins. And not just all of your sins, but all the sins of all the believers in every land. And not just all the believers in every land right now, but all the believers in all times past, all generations past, then this generation and all generations to come, all of those sins heaped upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Never did anyone bear so much guilt as the Lord Jesus bore upon the cross. 1 Peter 2, 22 and 24, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Isaiah 53, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Never was Jesus' holiness so displayed, but also his guilt there upon the cross. Never did he bear so much guilt. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then one final uh, paradox that we look at, this lion and the lamb. And being delivered up to the power of his enemies, he obtained the victory over his enemies. There upon the cross, he is never so much in the power of his enemies, and yet there upon the cross, he wins the victory. He's delivered up to his enemies. His enemies sought his life before. He read uh, the scroll from Isaiah. Everyone was pleased with what he said. He made the connection about the Gentiles being brought into the church and they all wanted to kill him and they tried to drive him off the edge of a cliff. And they couldn't. And every time his enemies tried to, to kill him, it seems like this, this same answer or reason is given as to why his time had not yet come. Well, at the cross, his time had come. Now he was delivered up to their power. He was delivered over to the malice and cruelty of wicked men, of Satan and all his minions. When Jesus was arrested, the soldiers came to arrest him. And, and Jesus said, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And Jesus yields himself over to his enemies. And yet, at this very time, he obtains the victory over his enemies. Christ never so effectively crushed Satan's head as when Satan bruised his heel. The weapon with which Christ warred against the devil and obtained a most complete victory and glorious triumph over him was the cross. The very instrument and weapon with which he had thought to overthrow Christ and brought on him shameful destruction. 
In his last suffering, Christ sapped the very foundations of Satan's kingdom. He conquered his enemies in their own territories and beat them with his own weapons. With their own weapons. As David cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. Thus Christ appeared at the same time and in the same act as both lion and lamb. He appeared as a lamb in the hands of his cruel enemies and as a lamb in the paws between the devouring jaws of a roaring lion. And yet at the same time he appeared as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He destroyed his own devourers and in nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion in glorious strength destroying his enemies as when he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. In his greatest weakness, he was most strong. And when he suffered most from his enemies, he brought the greatest confusion upon them. And so we worship Jesus, the lion and the lamb, the one who by his act redeemed all of history. And caused all of history to reflect its Savior. You see, that's really what we've been seeing here all along. These things in history, these things in our experience that seem so irreparably broken and fallen. That nothing could possibly make these things right. Well, that's the very thing we see Jesus suffering. What could ever make one who is perfectly righteous in all that he has done? What could ever make it right for him to suffer the guilt of all of our sins? That, that's a wrong that's greater than any wrong that we can ever experience in life. And yet by this greatest of all evils, God the Father and God the Son do the greatest of all goods. And so history is redeemed to reflect its very creator, the Lord Jesus. And so by these words, John would have us to, to listen to the elder when the elder says to us, And to him, do not weep. Not to say that we shouldn't grieve in life, certainly grieve and weep, but don't weep with despair as those who have no hope. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Jesus wins, and he is able to open the scroll because he was slain, and with his blood he purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, when we consider the heavens, the stars that you have made, what is man that you're mindful of him, let alone that you care for him? And yet we thank you, Father, that you've loved us in this indescribable way, that you've given us your son, you've not spared him, but given him up for us all. Lord, we pray that we might entrust to you all of our doubts and all of our tears, knowing with the confidence that we see displayed in the faces of the worshipers in heaven that Jesus wins. We thank you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.